0: Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Matt Rajansky, director of the Kennan Institute here at the Wilson Center. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning for um, what will be, I think, both a, a deep dive on some topics and also a broad-ranging conversation uh, about uh, the situation in Ukraine and uh, uh, sanctions and other uh, instruments of leverage with Russia. Um, Before I introduce our very impressive set of speakers for today, I want to note that tomorrow at 4 o'clock we will uh, host a former director of the Kennan Institute, Dr. Peter Redaway, for his memoir called Memories of Working on Dissidents and Soviet Politics, 1960 to 1991. So that's 4 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, Please join us for that. before I introduce uh, – so I'm going to introduce all three of our speakers, and then uh, what I'm going to do is invite Ambassador uh, Poikunz to give kind of a, uh, an opening comment, uh, and then we'll have a panel discussion uh, with uh, our two report authors. Um, so let me introduce all three of them now, though, so that we can just move ahead. Uh, Ambassador Poikunz – Uh, is currently ambassador of Latvia to Ukraine and has been in that position since December of 2015. He's been with the Latvian Foreign Service, though, since 1996 and is certainly an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, His career has included uh, service in the policy planning group and as deputy political director of the foreign ministry. He's also been uh, DCM here in Washington, which is uh, how I met him. Ambassador of Latvia to Slovenia and non resident ambassador of Latvia to Moldova, uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, and Kosovo. Uh, Just prior to his posting in Ukraine, he was ambassador at large for the Eastern Partnership in the Latvian MFA. Um, Our two uh, speakers presenting the report come from the International Center for Policy Studies. Uh, Vasil Filipchuk has held a number of positions as a professional diplomat in the Ukrainian foreign ministry, including as spokesman of the ministry, director of the ministry's EU department, and director general of the political and security department. In 2012, he chaired the European Integration Bureau under the aegis of Ukraine's Cabinet of Ministers. He's an expert on conflict resolution, peace building, and nation building in Central and Eastern Europe, and he brings with him today Anastasia Galuchka, who is an expert in foreign policy and international law at ICPS in Kiev and focuses on Ukraine's relationship with the EU and the EUS, uh, uh, legality in, uh, I guess, international armed conflict, and I'm not sure what NAC is non-international armed conflict, or internal armed conflict, same acronym. And she uh, propagates for further development of human rights in Ukraine and amelioration of Ukrainian diplomacy. She has an MA in international law from uh, Louvain in Belgium and an LLM in international public law and human rights from Tilburg University. So I think what I'll suggest is that everybody comes up, but Yoris, uh, you'll speak first, and then we'll transition to the panel. So thank you very much.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Matt, for this splendid introduction, and thank you very much for inviting me here. Uh, It's a big privilege and honor for me to provide today delivering remarks on the occasion of holding this seminar. I know Vasil Filipchuk for some time, and the International Center for Policy Studies, it's a long-term partner, I believe, of many embassies in Ukraine, and I think two weeks ago we were holding a seminar at the Embassy of Latvia and his analysis and evaluation is always highly appreciated by many foreign partners. That's why at first I would like to congratulate you and your team on this very interesting report which provides a comprehensive overview why the sanctions were introduced, are they efficient or not, the chronology of events on their introduction and their continuation and also about some deficiencies what these introductions are showing. I think Ukraine remains at the forefront of Europe's uh, attention. And for the European Union, Ukraine is a neighbor, and we are obviously wishing all neighbors the best. That was the reason why the European Union introduced the policy of Eastern Partnership with the aim of creating the zone of stability and prosperity. That's why we were promoting partnership with the Russian Federation when the circumstances allowed. And it's absolutely natural that we want to see Ukraine as a free, independent, prosperous country within its internationally recognized borders. The situation in Ukraine remains difficult. It's the sixth year when Ukraine is literally in war, unfortunately the conflict in Donbass is not over yet. With casualties every week on both sides. The discussions in December in Paris didn't bring, at the end of the day, decisive results. Probably the biggest success of the event was having this uh, event as such resuming the dialogue. But obviously, I think there were more expectations. The conflict in Donbass creates a very serious psychological problem for the Ukrainian society and also for President Zelensky whose one of the major pre electoral points was to end the war. The new government of Ukraine, which is there for some months already, young people, very ambitious, a lot of plans and visions, has yet still to demonstrate tangible results. It's a lot of reforms in the agenda. I would just mention here maybe the land reform I think, very important reform, which either might bring revolutionary changes or end up also as some kind of failure. So it depends how it's implemented. It's a lot of challenges Ukraine is facing besides the war. It's a fight against corruption. It's reforming the justice system, improving business climate. And Ukraine probably is facing two very difficult tasks simultaneously at first, you have to finish the war, and the second is to carry out domestic reforms. And it means, from my point of view, that Ukraine requires and deserves support from the international community, and it's actually us. And I would say, obviously, the European Union, the United States, other like-minded countries are natural partners in this field. The European Union, with all its deficiencies and challenges, We are not yet the United States of Europe, probably will never be, which means it always takes a lot of time to coordinate our positions, to find consensus. But even with all that, from my point of view, the European Union has been quite effective in tackling the, let's call it, Ukrainian challenge. Since 2014, the European Union has mobilized more than 15 billion euros in grants and loans, other 1.2 billion euros are expected for the support of the Prime Minister's Honcheruk's agenda with a particular emphasis on economic growth, public governance, energy sector environment. It's a lot of exchanges of visits of high officials between the European Union and Ukraine. It shows that the European Union is very much interested in stabilizing the situation. The European Union is equally supportive the restoration of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and I think it will be discussed today at length. It's based on the non-recognition policy of the occupation and annexation of the Crimea. It's based on supporting efforts of France and Germany within the Normandy Four format, because the European Union itself is not a part of this format. And it's also probably the most important is the European Union has responded, imposing sanctions on Russia for the open breach of international law. Our Russian partners very often claim that sanctions have been imposed against Russia as such. But I would like to reiterate that sanctions have been imposed not on Russia as such, but on the behavior of Russia. And uh, they should be removed when the territorial integrity of Ukraine will be restored. I completely agree with the authors of the report, who say if we move towards softening or even abolishing sanctions without punishing the aggressor, it would create a new unfortunate reality on the European continent. And I believe if we move towards such unfortunate reality in the continent on Europe, it will not be beneficial to no one. That's why I think the most important in this particular historical period is staying united. European Union, United States, Great Britain, like-minded countries such as Japan, both united at first on sanctions, keeping them there, but at the same time also being united on our joint willingness to promote reforms efforts in Ukraine. Because at the end of the day, I think stable and prosperous Ukraine is in the interests of the whole European community and a wider transatlantic community. Thank you for joining us today, and I wish interesting discussions. Thank you.
0: So uh, Juris will, will stay, thank you very much, by the way. Uh, I think you can you can see why he's had such a meteoric rise in the Foreign Service of Latvia and uh, in important uh, positions related to European security. He has a very clear vision on, on the topic, and he'll join us uh, for the discussion following the presentations. So I want to go right to the presentation of the report. Uh, Vasile, are you going to begin?: Sure please.
2: Um, Thank you very much. Um, Hello. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Ambassador. You almost covered the subject. Uh, There is very little to add to to what Ambassador said. Very consistent and comprehensive picture. So what I will focus uh, on is, uh, I will try to answer three questions. First of all, who we are and why we decided to uh, write this uh, report. Second is uh, what we uh, propose And the third point in more detailed analysis of the uh, sanctions What they are, what they are not uh, What are instruments to play with sanctions Will be covered by uh, Anastasia So first of all, uh, we brought with us this document And some of you have hard copy Those who didn't get hard copy can easily Google and find on our website It's uh, downloadable and you can get electronic uh, version of this report Uh, We are a group of authors, not only ICPS, but basically uh, key analytical centers in Kyiv, who at one point met, discussed situation uh, with uh, conflict with Russia and situation in the country and came to conclusion it's high time to write a report on sanctions. Why? Actually, uh, the the, uh, reason uh, was decision of uh, Parliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe to... Uh, invite Russia to join this uh, forum after it was expelled in 2014 for uh, annexation of Crimea and aggression against Ukraine. So question which we asked ourselves, sanctions were right thing to react unless you have other instruments and the uh, definition of sanctions It's an instrument between war and words. If you are not going to engage into war, and if you are not going only to limit your reaction with words, you must do something in the in the middle and it's sanctions. So sanctions were imposed for something we, which Russia has done but without any significant progress uh, from Russian side, sanctions um, in terms of uh, Russian membership in Russian Parliament pa- participation in uh, parliamentary assembly of Council of Europe uh, was was reviewed. why? what what the message is? while we were discussing then we listened from uh, italy uh, and it's not only italian uh, peculiarity that well it's time to review sanctions against russia because our economy is suffering blah 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 and then we uh, followed g7 meeting when u.s president uh, suddenly said we should invite uh, mr putin for next g7 meeting in 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 u.s so question is what changed that allowed process, which uh, is obviously softening uh, sanctions. Is it right or wrong? What are sanctions? Why they are important? What are benchmarks which would allow to uh, soften or maybe even vice versa? If you look at the notion of what is sanctions, sanctions are, uh, but maybe I should get go to my presentation, uh, so sanctions are instrument bef- between uh, war and words and reasons why sanctions were uh, introduced are on this uh, 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 slide. That they made number of um, efforts, uh, number of actions which had to be erected. But if you look at uh, sanctions, uh, what kind of uh, goal sanctions has? Normally, it's two uh, elements. Uh, sanctions are to punish and to prevent. Sanctions are an action which international community impose on a violator if a violator, punish, uh, if violator uh, makes uh, actions uh, which contradicts to international law to acceptable rule of behavior. And uh, second, uh, sanctions are an instrument to influence on uh, behavior of a violator to force it to return back to uh, rules of uh, International law without using um, uh, military uh, force. Uh, so it's basically a uh, theoretical. Um, uh Uh, 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 it's it's a theoretical definition of what sanctions are and you can just see uh, on my behind that it's uh, legitimate coercive measures applied by subjects of international law to terminate uh, international offense uh, restore violated rights and uh, fulfill offenders' obligation in the area of international legal responsibility so uh, sanctions are uh, punish and or uh, discourage changes and uh, questions which we ask it ourselves. What are conditions by which we can conclude that uh, sanctions uh, have already fulfilled their role or sanctions uh, have not fulfilled their role and must be kept? And you have in this uh, report uh, a big uh, part uh, which describes how we see these conditions and Nastya will say more. And what is important uh, in my opinion is that uh, at the end of our study we all came to a very uh, clear three conclusions about uh, sanctions. First of all there should be no games with sanctions. Uh, No games with sanctions for dubious immediate games. Uh, We should always remember that if we don't achieve goal uh, with sanctions, uh, if sanctions are not Uh, treated seriously, their meaning and their influence would weaken and it would encourage uh, violator for even more uh, violations and it would give example to others that you may violate international law, you should not abide uh, what is international rule of conduct and if you uh, don't uh, send clear message uh, that any violation should be will be prosecuted then uh, no one will be really uh, from those who have certain uh motives will fall off uh uh, international uh, law second con- second uh, conclusion which we uh, made is that uh, there are different countries uh, which imposed uh, sanctions sanctions can be uh, adopted either by un security council or by uh, countries coalition of willing uh, which uh, impose sanctions as their political decision to react on someone's actions and we see now that there are two main players in sanctions on Russia one is US another is European Union however we discovered there, are, there is a deficiency in coordination between EU and uh, US on sanctions and if we want sanctions to be efficient there should be consistent comprehensive approach to sanctions coordinated between uh, two key players which are EU and Russia and EU and and US and um, the third is we uh, elaborated our vision of benchmarking Uh, what should be uh, conditions achievement of which can lead to if conflict is settled to uh, easing up of sanctions, or if we see that uh, there are actions which even complicate conflict, so uh, then sanctions should be even increased. Uh, While we were doing this exercise, we found out a number of examples, really outcrying examples, how um, certain Uh, entities, people, institutions violate sanctions. However, they are not prosecuted. For example, uh, one of uh, stories which we discovered in our study, um, there were two embassies, so-called embassies, opened on the territory of European Union, which were called embassies of Donetsk People's Republic, one in Turin, one in uh, Marseille, and, well, it's already uh, an awkward how uh, these separatist uh, entities could open embassies. Certainly, we ask it um, uh, foreign ministries of these countries. So we ask it uh, law enforcement bodies just to explain us what the status, how they allow this to, to to happen. And Italian foreign ministry just said us, you know, it's NGO. We can do nothing about it. There are many separatist um, uh, movements which open different. Uh, organizations they could uh, call it sanctions uh, could call it embassies it can be embassy of, of uh, Jesus Christ and we should not impose sanctions on them and then we continued to investigate and we discovered that actually these two uh, so-called embassies were opened on expenses of one Russian businessman whose name is uh, Rostovtsov who suddenly is engaged into coal trade and coal which he is selling is from Donbass, smuggled into Russia then uh, labeled as Russian and then sold on territory of EU and money are spent for keeping this so-called embassies uh, functioning. So question which we ask it ourselves and our partners, why there is no action to prevent it or to punish it? so the third element is that sanctions must be all the time reviewed modified and uh, s- uh, we should always remember that uh, russia is able to adapt to sanctions so in case if we uh, regular review we must sure that sanctions are efficient and then obviously propose for russians that in case if there are improvements in place uh, the sanctions should be reviewed uh, reviewed and is it up then the question is what to do if you see that there are improvements from what you should start and from what you should finish and in our uh, report, we clearly differentiate sanctions on three different groups, and we give analysis um, of uh, each of the, each of these uh, three groups. What we should we do at the beginning of uh, improvement of the situation, and what we should do at the end? And here I give the floor to Nastya to give you more details yeah. about it.
3: Um, I'm going to wind back a bit because Aleksandrovich took us as well over half of my presentation, um, but. Now, either way, however we look at sanctions, whether they are as a means to punish, discourage future behavior, instigate a different type of behavior, the most important element we always have to keep in mind uh, is follow the money. If you want to hit them, you want to hit them where it hurts. And especially in Russia, where we have uh, state falsehoods and actually entire states' institutions, which are built on oligarchic wealth, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is... If we're going to hit that, if we're going to hit the money, if we're going to hit that oligarchic wealth, that that will be sensible throughout the entirety of Russia. Now, uh, economic sanctions have been imposed against Russia uh, on a global scale, and they can be divided in the following categories. So we have the freezing of assets, certain companies who are prohibited or um, or limited from accessing other financial markets. We have the ho- prohibition of activities of certain companies and individuals in the territory of the states which are imposing sanctions. Um, we have the limiting development uh, opportunities in various economic sectors and you have a restriction of export and import which in turn has resulted in trade shocks and pressure down the ruble. So now with all these restrictions and limitations the question is of course what's the result? And um, I'm going to start here by grabbing the bull by the horns with and I'm going to back- fixate your attention on the most significant line in this in this scheme, which is actually not Russia for some reason, but is Ukraine. Um, you see a rapid drop in Ukraine's GDP, and the main thing I need you to take away from this is that, first of all, Ukraine lost control of substantial territory, and this is not just in size, but as well in economic value, combined with a significant drop in trade with Russia and as well with a number of other countries. And this goes again combined with a sudden conflict in the East. So this leads to a uh, substantial economic crisis um, which has caused a rapid and heavy impact on Ukrainian export and GDP. Now, we've been doing this tool for a while with our, with our paper, we've been discussing this in Europe, and whenever I get the question in why is Ukraine not leading in this, why is Ukraine not cutting off all ties it has with Russia, this is usually the graph I refer to, because sadly, uh, and this is not something I say with pride. Ukraine is simply not in a position where it can, fo- it can afford itself to stand on principle. Principle alone, for some reason, very sadly and very unfairly, so uh, does not keep your economy running. Principle alone does not keep your economy from utter r- ruin. And uh, and that's where we do need actually help from European partners, from Western partners, who can. We have more. We have more of a cushion, or we have more of a of a buffer to fall back on. Um, And on this slide, of course, the next one, we see that Russian export uh, has dropped as well significantly after the imposition of sanctions. 2016 was a death. But then on the other hand, what we also see is surprisingly, it's going back up. It's rising to the point that we can say it's almost getting back on level with what it used to be before the imposition of sanctions. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that Russia has found a way to compensate, to navigate, to work it through. And it tells us that Russia has simply also decided to switch markets if europe doesn't doesn 't want him then then it 'll go to China, and it has obviously had a positive effect uh, on its um, on its export so then goes the question of course, now does it work and I honestly do not mean to frustrate anyone when I come back with the answer that says, "Well, both yes and no um, and I know this is a frustrating answer. you think that by now we would have a clear answer for you, but i Let's be very clear here. No one's going to discuss the effectiveness of sanctions in general. We're not going to say that it's not there. It is there in a certain level. But the problem with sanctions is it's just difficult to measure it because we have such a large amount of factors that are influencing the situation. And we have the added problem to that, that the Kremlin is vehemently and very aggressively so denying that sanctions are having any impact on its economy at all. It's going so far as to say internally that we're not like the sanctions are benefiting us. We're getting we're getting we're getting stronger because of the. Uh, sanctions mechanism because of import substitution policy. It goes so far as to tell its own citizens that the countries that are imposing sanctions on us are actually suffering more than we are. Um, But then again, we have one simple and quite persuasive argument that tells us that it does work. It doesn't affect. It is stinging them. And it's the most simplest argument of all, but it is the fact that they have put in significant diplomatic efforts to get those sanctions removed. They're counting on the fact that these sanctions will get removed because they need it to further their economy, to further their technological uh, stride forward. So at least we can go on from that. Sanctions are having an effect. Now... It is clear that either way, there has been a serious impact on the macroeconomic situation in Russia. We see the combination of growth in Russia's domestic and foreign debt, the inability to access external borrowing, and the failing oil prices have eventually led to collapse of the ruble in 2014. Uh, And as a result, we saw a rapid withdrawal of capital um, over uh, $151.5 billion, which is over $19 billion more than it was the year prior to it. Uh, Russia has used part of its foreign exchange reserves and its pensionary funds to prop up its economy. And uh, the Central Bank of Russia actually stopped supporting the value of the ruble and the increase and the interest rates altogether. So can we say that damage was caused? Yes, of course. But then? Uh, then you also have a number of ambiguous consequences, because you also see, of course, a sharp decrease in imports on food. Um, which has positively affected their trade balance. We see that the rising world prices for oil have automatically led to a decline in oil production. And taking into account the fact that the ruble exchange rate is very tightly correlated to the oil prices, we can ask ourselves a question whether the economic crisis was actually triggered or stimulated by sanctions, or was it more an accidental international economic phenomenon? And then, of course, we see that a number of sectors like food, uh, chemical sector, extractive, and agricultural uh, have been growing. And as you may recall from the previous slides, uh, their GDP has bounced back, uh, their export has risen. And how do you explain that? Well, as Vasil Aleksandrovich has said, one of the biggest flaws that we notice, um, one of the most frustrating flaws that we notice in the sanctions mechanism is that they tend to stick to their traditional cause. And what has happened in the past five years is that our Western partners have checked the box that we've done the sanctions. We've imposed the sanctions check uh, without consistently and, and actually almost weekly or monthly checking, are they having the desired effect? Are we reaching what we want to, like the end goal that we want to achieve? And so, because we don't have that, we're stuck with a sanctions mechanism that is not dynamic, that doesn't adapt itself. Whereas Russian economy is adapting and is thriving and prospering further, we have failed to react to that accordingly. Um, There is no change uh, or adaptability in objects, in sectors that we're targeting. And eventually, Russia's economy, as I said, is able to navigate it, adjust it, and grow out of it. So the biggest criticisms that we have uh, is that first of all, economic sanctions at this point do not trigger enough pressure to knock the Russian economy off its feet. Uh, We have also, uh, initially we noticed a significant impact on Russian economy in general, but now we see that most of the burdens are being carried by uh, Russian citizens instead of the targeted upper class, which is uh, once again unintended collateral damage uh, that no one actually really wanted. Uh, We see that the Russian Federation has managed to compensate um, and has room to maneuver at the expense of interest rates, foreign exchange reserves, and even their internal pensionary funds. Um, the sanction systems are right now not systematic, uh, they are not coordinated, they're lacking a unified approach, and we see that it does also not take into account current changing global trends. Um, And this, in combination with a lack of unified approach, leads to other countries suffering losses because of sanctions which are intended to damage only the Russian Federation, but end up damaging third parties. And in this regard, I kind of want to have a moment and stop at the US secondary sanctions mechanism, Um, because there has been a very clear and palpable discrepancy between the EU and the US. I know that there's a coordination group apparently not doing its work very well. And I think it's most notable with a very awkward moment Um, when uh, the U.S., under the Countering America's Adversaries uh, Through Sanctions Act, imposed sanctions that targeted Nord Stream 2 and targeted also European companies. Uh, Germany and Austria reacted very aggressively, reacted very displeased, called it that a moment. um, And both countries have then stated that the U.S. secondary sanctions has actually put a significant strain on EU-U.S. relations. And from, once again, from all the previous debates that I have led in Europe as well, I can say that one thing that everyone agrees upon is the fact that, yeah, f- sure, we have a coordination group, uh, by the way, which some countries, they were not aware of the fact that we have a coordination group, which is actually quite depressing. Uh, so yeah, there's a co- coordination grou- group, but it's not doing its job. It's not uh, fully um, working uh, working along the function that it should have. And. Now, for obviously, individual sanctions are also a very important part of that unified approach um, they, um, and of the current sanction mechanism but they only make sense once again when they they are being imposed systematically and consistently and by the entire Western Front. And so together with Anja uh, Talimunczuk, who's our colleague in Poland, uh, and she started the Sanctions 2020 Mechanism Initiative, uh, where she targets uh, a bunch of individuals who for some reason have not been put on individual sanctions list yet, even though they should be. Now we have uh, written down the top I think in our paper, I am not going to bore you by reading all the names and the reasons out loud, but I would like to take a top four uh, and go over that with you to give you an idea on what kind of people we're talking about. Now, I'm going to start off with someone who looks like the perfect James Bond villain, uh, and it's not Putin, but the guy on the right, which is uh, Serhirolduhin. He's a childhood friend of Putin. I think, actually, that's already enough. He's a childhood friend of Putin. I think we can stop there. Um, And he's also godfather of Putin's daughter, Maria. Um, And officially, Rolduhan is not in politics at all. Uh, He's a musician, he's a virtuoso who dabbles in business. Now, the Russian definition of dabbling in business, as far as I've come to understand, is he's uh, very active in the money laundering business of other Russian uh, diplomats or Russian officials who have been put under the sanctions list. Um, So I'm just going to give you, I'm not going to bore you with the endless discussions and details, but I'm going to give you one example that I liked a lot, uh, which is um, his company. He has a company called International Media Overseas. And they have, so it's owned by Roald Duhin, and they had at a certain point um, started a contract with the uh, state-owned enterprise Rosneft. and so the terms of these contracts were such that for every breach that Rosneft would do against the contract, they would have to pay $750,000. Um, and eventually all these accidental breaches of contract ended up in a total sum, of a staggering sum of $69 million U.S. million that they had to pay. Now, I don't want to make any insinuations, but either uh, Rosneft has to fire its entire legal team uh, and have to do it right now. Or we can maybe assume the fact that um, it was intentional, and uh, that's an intentional scheme that they put up. It's one of the many schemes, by the way, that you can read in a in a paper uh, where they where they set up these contracts, bogus contracts, uh, to launder money through in Roldugin's case, his extensive business conglomerations, and something that's been happening in a wide variety of other uh, of other phenomenons. And then the next guy I'm going to discuss is Shoigu. He's Russia's minister, def- uh, minister of Defense, and he has signed off on tactics which are used in Russia's hybrid war in Ukraine uh, and also in Syria. He basically uses these two countries as test countries um, f- to try out all kinds of new uh, military tactics. And even if we're not going to talk about Ukraine in this, especially, I think, at the very least, we can admit that that uh, the Russia's intervention in Syria was downright barbarous, with uh, school children being murdered and bombed down. Um, And it's actually quite a miracle this man is not on any sanctions list yet. And then the third one is actually a pair, Gott Nisanov and Zarakh Ilyev. I think you, in Europe they didn't know the names, but I'm thinking that in the U.S. they should be more popular because they were included in your so-called Kremlin report, um, which was prepared by the U.S. Department of Treasury. Uh, and because of their, of their relationship with the Rothenbergs and their general toxicity towards US companies and banks, which also indirectly has influenced EU companies and banks. And other than that, they have infamously financed several uh, humanitarian convoys to Donbass and Luhansk, which with uh, same, uh, humanitarian convoys, I mean convoys loaded with guns, bombs and anything else for, for their soldiers. And they've also been actively recruiting fighters for the conflict in eastern Ukraine. And then, last but not least, uh, a man that Mr. Filipchuk has already um, mentioned. Rusan Rostovsev is infamously known as the coal king uh, of Donbass. He is responsible for a third of the coal production in the region, and this is around, amounts to um, about 700,000 tons per year. Um, and his coal business is also under explicit protection of the Kremlin, of course. Now. I do want to once again point your attention to our paper because you can see in there that it's been um, it 's been discussed very extensively not only with the company trails like mentioning all the companies that are involved but also with the money trail which can be followed through Tallinn Business Bank Dubai and anywhere else um, i'm going to give you a very short update on like on the most important companies I hope you don't have to you don't have to remember it all you can read it again but uh, and the first one is Kolnir Limited, it's a Rostovsev company. So he buys coal from two local um, Donbass mining companies and then he sells it to Kaproben, which is a second uh, big company that comes into play. And Kaproben then transports that coal to Rostov merchant port in Russia. And there you have a third company coming into view, which is the SDS Group, uh, and more specifically it's uh, Swedish company MIR Trade AG. This is a company that's predominantly active in the coal mining industry in Europe. And um, there at the Rostovsev merchant port, you have actually the transported coal is taken into by the SDS group. It's mixed with their own uh, coal and then sold in Europe, throughout Europe, even in Canada at some point. Uh, With this, uh, they get in a bunch of money that is being laundered through London, Canada as well, France, uh, through all kinds of sub-companies. And eventually this money is used, as Vassil Alexandrovich said, to set up bogus embassies in Marseille, Turin, I think at a certain point even in Greece. Uh, And it's getting to the point where it's getting quite ridiculous when we came to Italy and we had a specific sit-down with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and they told us, well, we cannot do anything about it, too bad. And I think if you can't, then who can? Um, So these are the main people that we've targeted, but it goes. there's a list of 10 more people uh, in the paper. And then the recommendations we end up coming up with is, and this might become a point of discussion, some of you might say no, if to do more, some of you might say this is more than enough. Uh, but first of all, the rolling back of sanctions, as we said, must be tied to a specific benchmarking system for the Russian Federation. Now, in Ukraine, I've had a bunch of, uh, I have had people from the European External Action Service tell me why, like, why would we do this benchmarking system? Why would we even talk about rolling back sanctions um, if we're not if, if we don't plan on doing it anytime soon? It's because there's a difference between a de facto and the yura sanctions mechanism. You can, the yura keep it in place, and de facto, the rolling back as we actually notice it, is already slowly beginning. You see language loosening up, you see invi- invitations coming in for Russia to, you know, you can come back at the table again, we're, we're done being angry at you, and that completely defeats the entire point of sanctions. So therefore, I think the current system uh, which has been imposed quite chaotically uh, and without a clear specific view, has to be restructured, reorganized, tied to certain actions from both Russia, Ukraine, and the West uh, to create a specific benchmarking system. Then we have the fact that effective control over Ukrainian uh, non-controlled territories is a beginning uh, and absolutely not the end of phasing out sanctions. Uh, So the phasing out of sanctions can only uh, be completed when Ukraine has also received full compensation for the damage uh, it has gotten. Uh, then the rolling back of sanctions starts with the diplomatic ones. Of course, the easiest sanctions go first and the heaviest sanctions stay until the very end, until all the um, all the end goals are achieved of the sanctions mechanism. And then eventually, of course, the return of Crimea to Ukraine uh, and compensations is the only thing that can lead to the end of a sanctions me- regime, which I previously said. Um, we also need inno- innovative new approaches and increased pressure. As long as the Russian Federation refuses to comply to international law, This is what I mean with a coordination group that has to be reinvigorated, that has to be uh, more of a brainstorming group as well, and the streamlining of sanctions uh, is is of course a must, and the removal of the gaps and inconsistencies that we have described as well in our paper has to be considered to to make sure that we maintain a strong front against the Russian Federation. Um, This was our presentation for now. I want to thank you a lot uh, for if you have any questions, I guess that Matthew, okay. we'll take it from here.
0: Thank you very much to both of you, uh, and and to yours. I'm sure we have a lot of questions, but um, I think I want to start, uh, Vasile, by asking you a framing question for this entire exercise. Um, I don't know exactly. I still don't know exactly how to phrase it, but I think it it fundamentally has something to do with how you how you think the international economy works. Um, if, at the end of the day, there is... Or maybe maybe it's two questions wrapped into one, right? So, so one question is, just how badly does the target country, in this case Russia, want to maintain its bad behavior? So you have cases like, for example, Iran, Cuba... North Korea, where behavior that, let's say, the United States has defined as bad, as unacceptable, um, has nonetheless been seen as essential, as vital to the survival of those regimes. And so as long as those regimes continue to exist, under the pressure of even the most extreme sanctions regime that you can imagine, the behavior simply hasn't changed. It's a, a measurable fact. The other side of the equation is, if you understand the global economy to be fundamentally a, a market-based system, to be, to be uh, kind of flexible, adaptable, et cetera, then in fact what, uh, and now I'm blanking, I think, Anastasia, you presented the curve, right, where you showed Russia's GDP recovering. That is probably a phenomenon that will happen no matter what. You could implement all of the perfecting amendments, so maybe one question for each of you. You could implement all of these changes to the sanctions regime to make it absolutely perfect from the side of the EU and the United States And Russia is still going to find outlets with China, with the Gulf countries, whatever. And the pressure is therefore going to be lessened. But the long-term impact of that is going to be that you change the shape of the global economy, right? You create separate trading and financial nodes. So my question for you essentially is, you know, take these two kind of basic theoretical dilemmas for sanctions and explain to me how if you have – an adversary that is 100% committed to the outcome, uh, how do you deal with it in terms of sanctions? And if you if you agree that the global economy works that way, is that an acceptable cost to sanctions?
2: Shall we take more questions? Or
0: we'll just start with those, good. and good. that gives uh, everybody in the audience time to think, and then we'll...
2: Uh, you play now my role in our internal discussion. Perfect. It's always me who questions. I'm me. not surprised. <laughs> uh, very skeptical about uh, sanctions uh, in general. Well, uh, let's start from the point that uh, politics is uh, always a process of making decisions from existing alternatives. Uh, I think sanctions are very bad instrument, but what are others? As a military enforcement to peace, and we know it's impossible, it's unthinkable because we talk about uh, permanent member of UN Security Council with nuclear weapon, so no one will send troops to, 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 to force Russians to get out of Crimea or uh, stop supporting uh, separatists in Donbas. So if you don't use uh, military instruments, what else you have? either verbal statements of disagreements and uh, no one cares about words. Or you do something something more. Something more is sanctions. That's why even if we assume that sanctions are very bad and not effective, there is nothing else which which international community has now in possession. Uh, If we look at experience of sanctions implementation, um, it has very, very uh, different track record, more negative than positive. Normally sanctions- Negative and ineffective. Yes. Uh, Sanctions very often are used by rulers in in a country in question to strengthen their rule. They are showing, you see, they hate us They are using sanctions to punish all of us. That's why we are against sanctions which covers the whole country. Mm -hmm. And we favor uh, targeted sanctions focused on people who are responsible for actions and not on population of the country, which is basically innocent and has nothing to do, even if they are under propaganda supporting their rulers. But still, they are not responsible for political decisions. Uh, Sanctions have not forced to change countries which have closed economic system. And Russia is a huge economy. It's the biggest economy on which ever sanctions okay. were applied. Neither North Korea nor uh, Iran nor any other country can be compared to Russia. Mm -hmm. No single country in recent history of such size of economy uh, has ever faced uh, sanctions. And there is no point to be naive that uh, Russians would uh, collapse in in two, three years uh, under sanctions. Uh, But at the same time, there are certain elements of sanctions imposed which forced Russian elite to suffer. Mm-hmm. They got used to all the privileges and luxury life in, in, in Europe, and many of them had assets in the U.S., and we know uh, stories, Nastya can uh, tell the stories for hours about other oligarchs uh, who, who, who faced problems in the U.S. and had to spend enormous amount of efforts and money to somehow uh, manage these problems. Uh, so it really bites Mm -hmm. But it doesn't kill. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really change the whole um, logic of behavior. Mm -hmm. That's why what we do, on one side we have... punitive
0: and not necessarily coercive.
2: Absolutely. On one side you have sanctions as a stick, but you always have to have a carrot. Mm -hmm. And if you have only carrot, uh, it should be either very big which should uh, somehow convince uh, the other side to to, to make uh, changes in their policy to get this carrot. Or if you can't give this big carrot, uh, there should be another instrument which forces uh, the country in question to change politics because now they can get small carrot, Mm -hmm. but if they refuse, they will have pressure and value of carrot is increasing that's why sanctions are important because if you don't impose enough sanctions you must make more concessions if you try to make peaceful settlement of the conflict
0: Um, in other words you're saying that the negatives that you define with the sanctions create the positives that you can provide later okay great i can
3: have a moment um i think the problem with me answering your question is the fact that i'm more of an academic and legal theorist so uh you're always going to back on me with but we, real politics at, doesn't at say the,
0: that. At the, No, at the wilson center <laughs> we welcome academics that's um, the point
3: <laughs> so i'm gonna okay, let me let me take you back to like five six years ago when when russia did did the did the thing right where it invaded ukraine and everyone was like how dare it uh the shock was palpable over the entire world and obviously you're stuck with with certain norms of behavior that you can follow so either you do nothing uh, which would have been bad Either you start a war, uh, you send military power, and you get involved. When I say you, I mean the West, the U.S., Europe, whoever whoever was a third party to all of this. And you start a war, which is also not the desirable effect, because that can escalate quite quickly, and everyone wants to to, uh, avoid that to the maximum. Or you do the only other thing that we have available to us, which is sanctions. Basically the only other thing uh, that is available to us. And the problem is, and I've said this also throughout my presentation, the problem is with the cured sanctions mechanism, maybe here I kind of a bit disagree with what Mr. Philip Chuk said, it's not necessarily the fact that it doesn't work, it's the fact that we don't want it to work. We're not doing our, We have that. we have that instrument, but we're not doing our best to make it work. We just kind of, it's like Using a hammer on a nail and going half as, eh, no, it's not working, never mind. That's basically what we're doing with the current sanctioning mechanism. And that's actually what's so toxic to it because it's not just a problem for Ukraine right now. We're not just here because we're Ukrainians and we want to convince you to help us. It's actually and really, and I might sound dramatic when I say it, it's an issue of the entirety of international law. It's an issue for all future victims of perpetrating international violations. It's not just our issue, it's a global issue. So what we're doing right now with the sanctions mechanism is basically we're sending the message that if you take off the box, and like, if you've imposed like a couple of sanctions, and it's not working, then you can just make it part of our, what we're doing right now. Sanctions are becoming part of our foreign policy, of, of your foreign policy, which is not what they're supposed to be. The definition, the very definition of sanctions, inherently they're supposed to be temporary. They're supposed to be temporary, straight to the point, getting uh, to a certain angle, and we've, lost, we've just lost sight of that angle altogether. They have been imposed in a very chaotic way without, uh, without a lot of coordination and, and communication between not only EU and US, but also all other countries involved. They have been very non-innovative, non-creative with the entire process. If we're talking about the whole Crimean issue and Black Sea regional security, for example, what, and I keep asking the question, like seriously, how many conversations have there been with Turkey about Black Sea regional security, about making it a bit difficult for Russia? Turkey is taking two billion euros per year from the European Union, is getting access to EU pre-accession funds, and it's still not choosing sides, which is mind-baffling for me, that's, that's insane. We're, we're, not, we're not demanding that much. If we look at the China issue, I'm gonna shoot back the question, how many times have we had delegations from the EU, US, or Ukraine go to China to, to see and set up a, a diplomatic forum just to see? Um, you can, I cannot get the counter, counter argument, that's never gonna work, but we haven't even tried and i think that's the most frustrating part about the current sanction mechanism is we have just de facto already forgone a lot of other options a lot of abilities or possibilities to be creative so in that case yeah when we're talking about the most even the most vigorous attempts on sanctions might uh, end up uh, temporarily stalling russia but eventually it'll bounce back i don't think we know because i don't think we've actually tried and I'd like to see that go first before we give up all hope and say, well, it's not we're gonna, never going to have the desired effect anyway. Mm-hmm. I also want to pay attention to the fact that in the past 20 to 30 years, sanctions have been used in tenfold times more often than they have before then. Which tells us what? It tells us that international order is slowly failing, that we're having issues with countries non complying to international law, international agreement. The idea of Pacta sunt Cervanta with the Budapest Memorandum has gone out of the door. And that's very distressing because that tells us what, in 50 years, we'll have no accountability on an international level? Is that what we're, go- what we're moving forward to? Because then we're going to go back to either Cold War solution or a feudal system of all time, all-out wars. And I think that's something that's worth discussing. Yeah,
0: it's. I, I think that's... That's right. I think less than 50 years, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so the floor is open. Uh, I ask you just raise your hand. I'll call on you. We have microphones on both sides. And if you could identify yourself, name, affiliation, if you have one, and question. Sir, right there. Hi. Uh, Pat Spann, just a retired uh, federal government guy. Um, I, I'd like to go back to, you know, one of the reasons for the sanctions.
2: I, I seem to remember, I seem to have read over the years that the majority of the uh, residents of the Crimea and eastern Ukraine would just as soon not be ruled by Kiev. Is, is there truth to that? And it seems like that helps muddy the whole waters of their— tr- uh, the, uh, Kiev is trying to control an area that doesn't want to be controlled. I, I, and it seems like that muddies the whole um, reality of uh, making the sanctions work.
0: Okay. So, we yeah, we can collect, yeah, that's right. I think I saw the gentleman in the red tie right there, yeah. Other side, there you go.
4: Yeah, hi, I'm from the Embassy of Ukraine. Uh, first and your one, name? Thank you. uh, Taras, Taras Maskalienko. Thank you for your exceptional work. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, what do you have put there? Um, I have actually have a lot of questions, but the uh, I'll just stick to the, to, to, to the first one. Um, see, uh, uh earlier you said that the first sections that can be lifted are diplomatic ones. That the, the those are the sections that pr- probably are the ones that we can, um, you know, uh, let ourselves uh, go off because uh, those are the ones that are less effective or the ones that are, you know, not that important in a way, in a way. And um, what, are, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by saying? Can you defy what are the diplomatic sanctions that you are proposing to lift? Or, or, okay. or what are the exact okay. number of those instruments that, that we're ready to let go? Uh, are, we g- are we ready to, um, I don't know, uh, let in Russians in some other international platforms that are taking part in uh, serious negotiations around the okay. uh, bilateral and trilateral and multilateral um, communication in the world or okay. some other stuff?
0: Thanks, Saras. uh and <laughs> I think we have one more right here.
2: Yes,
0: uh, David Little.
2: Um self employed. Um I my question is basically what is the roadblock to sanctions for these people that you've uh, pointed out? Um and does that include the Putin chef? I can't remember his name. Pregoshaut
0: huh? Pregosha.
2: Yes, thank you. He's in charge of the Wagner group or yeah. kind of runs it. Yeah. Um so, what is the roadblock here in the US? Is it Congress? Is it the president? Or is it a roadblock over in Europe? I mean, what's stopping from these people receiving uh, being sanctioned under the Majinsky Magins- Act?
0: Magnitsky. Okay. Yeah, Magnitsky. Got it. Thank you. Great. Okay. So, we have uh, Pat's question about uh, what people in the Donbass actually want, uh, Taras about what uh, further diplomatic sanctions could be lifted. Uh, and then, David, uh, why, in fact, have not the 14 individuals that you mentioned been sanctioned?
2: Okay, I will uh, start with um to ask question, because it was my part of, of, of work and discussions, uh, not nicely about uh, sequencing of uh, sanctions phasing out. Uh, we participate at different expert uh, groups, just modeling what will happen in case if, if there is progress, or things are getting worse, and very often you hear from our Russian counterparts uh, points that fine, but if we did this, what's the benefit for us? Uh, And it's basically, it's a fair point, because the whole theory of sanctions, the nature of sanctions, is that it's an instrument with which you play. Things are getting better, you easy sanctions, things are getting worse, you strengthen sanctions, you play with this. You have a phrase that, uh, phasing that uh, abolishment of sanctions is possible only after full implementation of Minsk. And then you have assumptions that progress in Minsk implementation may lead to phasing out of sanctions. And then you have a question, okay, fine, if Ukrainian parliament would adopt three demanded uh, law by Minsk uh, on uh, amnesty elections and uh, special status, Is it a huge progress in means implementation? Yes, but should it mean that uh, sanctions should be phased out? No, but in case if Russians uh, helped to um, uh, conduct elections and started to remove armament, we would still have a very long way to go towards final settlement of the conflict and Ukrainian army taking control over eastern border, but we would see uh, very good steps uh, which would need encouragement. What then should we do, Uh, keeping the most important sanctions in place, but showing goodwill? We were discussing a lot, and there is no one uh, opinion on this, and it was my idea that we should start with diplomatic sanctions, because what is diplomatic sanctions? Uh, For example, the first sanction was um, a refusal of European Union to conduct EU-Russia summits when Russian president goes to Brussels and meets the head of European Commission and European Council. It's sanctioned that the EU doesn't conduct the summits with uh, Russia anymore. But if we imagine that uh, Russians removed all their armaments and we have uh, good progress, would it really cause us a problem if uh, Russian president would meet with uh, two presidents from European Union and they would conduct negotiations? I don't really care think it's it's a big big uh, concession, but it will be very symbolic. It has a very strong symbolism. It will be uh, remarkable. It will be noticed. It will be encouragement. But it's a sanction which is very easy to impose and very easy to take it back and we're very easy to, to uh, remove from, from from list of sanctions. The same uh, G7. If we have very significant improvement in Donetsk, then you could understand why Mr. Trump would wish Mr. Putin to, to come for next G7 meeting, but only in case if 500 tanks uh, left, uh, and uh, still we have to remove 300,000 Kalashnikovs, so if you have serious progress. But if not, obviously, uh, then not. Um, So diplomatic sanctions are the easiest instrument to play. That's why if you need to start with something, it's better to start with these sanctions than with economic sanctions. Because for economic sanctions, there is certain inertia. They really influence only a certain period of time. And uh, they are much heavier in managing, and also legal proceedings are uh, very complicated uh, and so on. So if you have three groups of sanctions, personal, economic, and diplomatic or political one, uh, we will start uh, we would propose to start with uh, diplomatic and to end up with economic and, and, and uh,
0: again i would underscore that this tracks with what you said about incentives right yes that sanctions are in, in a sense the inverse of the incentives you're creating by removing sanctions
2: absolutely correct uh, what you said about eastern ukraine uh well um we, we should need another roundtable or or conference to discuss about uh what 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 were reasons of conflict in donbass i don't think we would. Uh, need now to have this discussion because it's 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 a very complicated different story but uh if you look at the conflict itself it would be a very um i would say um, quite not correct to say as that conflict started because people in the east didn't want to be ruled by Kiev uh it's not correct uh, conflict started uh, with different uh, processes on different level conflict is at least three-dimensional, it's geopolitical conflict between West and Russia, well, Russia and West, it's bilateral problems between Ukraine and Russia, and it's internal problems in the country, which is also matter of fact. So they just exploded in one place in one time. And I think the last uh, reason which led to explosion is that people in Donetsk didn't want to be ruled by Kiev. Uh, if you look back, uh, actually, the old problem started when men from Donetsk was in Kiev ruling the whole of the country. Uh, so it's not it's not correct to say that it was a uh, reaction from from people in in this uh, areas that they didn't want to to rule and if you compare what what they have now and what what used to be uh, 5 or 10 years ago donetsk used to be the second richest ca- uh, richest city in our country donetsk used to be really prosperous uh Region with huge state subsidies. I don't think that uh, such a simplistic uh, description is is correct. But again, it's it's much mo- much deeper, much more serious discussion. What are reasons of what happened?
0: Although one could quip that that refers to a time when Kiev was ruled from Donetsk. But anyway, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm going to
3: quickly address the question on uh, uh, the roadblock. I think the first thing that came to my mind when the question was asked was, "You tell me." But um, now, what I've seen in Europe so far is that the the question on broadening sanctions and especially towards these individuals, uh, by the way, Prigozhin is already on the sanctions uh, um, in on the sanctions list, uh, so that's not really a problem right now. But for these individuals in Europe, is actually a big problem is the fact that there some of them are indirectly um, involved. As in, they're indirectly uh, helping. Uh, so they're not directly involved in Eastern Ukraine or in, the, in, the, in, in Crimea, but they are helping other sides step the sanctions against them. So for Europe, that's already t- gone too far. They only want those that are directly involved uh, in Eastern Europe in violation of international rights uh, of international law, or, or who are uh, who can be directly linked to uh, helping out uh, the affected regions. Now, uh, that's already been a point of discussion for us, quite heavily so, because then, what, again, what's the point of sanctions? You're not making them effective. You're actually giving them a loophole and saying that, well, you can go through your friends. I once had a discussion with a journalist, and we were as well talking about the sanction system. I said, OK, what do we need to do to have it make sense? And he goes last day, if you want to hit, if you want to have, have sanctions, have an impact, what you have to do is you take the top 100,000 of the Russian oligarchy and you sanction every single one of them. Wife, children, grandfather, anyone in their neighborhood. Because then they have no more loopholes. They have no more ways to go around and circumvent them. And then you make life for them so difficult because they have nowhere to put their money or it's frozen somewhere. They cannot go outside of the country. They cannot go outside of Russia. You make it so difficult for them that they'll have to comply. So that was our issue with europe uh and now with the us honestly what i think it is because you guys have the global magnetic act which is a huge plus which in europe we're still working on Uh, and i'm hoping it's going to be there in place in a year or two maybe that's too optimistic but that's my fingers crossed and we're hoping uh because i've had some discussions in europe where they told me well yes that would give rise to a new wave of sanctions uh, against individuals in europe it will give way to it will make it legally possible uh, Before the U.S., I think it's more actually a lack of initiative and more the fact that the sanctions, the whole Ukraine-Russia uh, thing has become dormant. It's not a hot topic anymore. I've had at the last Kiev Security Forum, people just call it Ukraine fatigue. People are just tired of hearing about Ukraine and they don't want to rediscuss and reopen that topic again and again. So I think that's where it's kind of blocking, is that in order to put these people on individual sanctions list, there has to be research done, there has to be governments connected, uh, gathering of evidence. You cannot just go ahead and say, check, like, I'm targeting you. And I think that's where it stagnates in the U.S., is that the initiative taking in all of this has kind of – the motorists kind of died out, uh, and I guess we're hoping to reinvigorate it.
0: Okay. Um, we have a couple more minutes if there are other questions. I guess. Let me maybe conclude with with this question uh, for all of you, which is um, it it seems to me that against a backdrop that looked like maybe the 1990s where the global economy and geopolitics is, you know, principally unipolar, uh, almost everybody wants to get along with the United States and Europe. The momentum appears to be towards greater, I think you referred to a United States of Europe and then correctly noted, we are not heading in that direction. I, I think that's the case. Um, that maybe the type of regime that you're envisioning, especially in your remarks, Anastasia, this, you know, you implied that yes, if we could convince China to come on board, well, that would be very significant, and I think that's true. And if there were more loopholes closed in the West, that would be significant, and that's true but that's not the global context of today, right? We're operating against a backdrop of what we in Washington have now started in our wonderful production of acronyms to call Great Power Competition, GPC, right? Uh, so you see GPC everywhere, it's the new backdrop for everything. Well, if in fact we, we uh, are living and will be living in a divided world and one in which you know, there is refuge for those who disagree with one side or the other, Um, then the idea of a kind of common front, even around very fundamental principles, principles of war and peace, of international law, I think is going to be challenged. And I think that the reference point starts to look much more like the mid-20th century or, you know, maybe even the 19th century or sometime previously. Uh, You know, I think someone said in in the last U.S. administration that this is behavior out of the 19th century. Um, So I guess the question I would leave you with is— is there a way to do sanctions that have impact in our time now that relies on what we can actually achieve and not what would be broadly speaking a desirable state of the world what would you do what would you do now today that's within your power and and I can give you a very specific example right um, I think the point was made Ukraine, Feels unable to sort of rip off the bandage of its own economic interdependence with Russia. Why not?
2: I, mean,
3: <laughs> I could answer this, but it's so politically incorrect that I'm not going to. <laughs> that's just going to put my head on a chopping block.
0: <laughs> it's a safe space.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah, very anonymous. Now. Right,
0: right, that's true.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, here goes my unpopular opinion. Uh, Ukrainian embassy, (laughs) please (laughs) don't. I'm not speaking for the entirety of Ukraine. We've had this question as well before. And my very unpopular opinion from the first time on uh, has been that, honestly speaking, Ukraine has to do more. Um, If we want to talk about what specific sanctions, well, we can impose now a new set of sanctions. We can do what what some of our contacts here have suggested, which is we're blocking all technology towards Russia. We're not doing any trade anymore. We're not buying off their debt. We're not doing, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, That also doesn't sound very achievable, as you said, in in this world right now. Um, But for me, I think the most important part is that Ukraine is, in a position where it actually can baffle russia but is not going to because it's politically undesirable what think about what think about the current situation in ukraine right what is the most what would be the most uh what would be the worst situation for russia to get out of this the worst the worst thing for russia now to happen with regards to ukraine is ukraine going you know what keep it Mm -hmm. have it Mm -hmm. we're cutting it off and we're moving forward without it if you have a rotten leg you cut it off that's That's what that's what you do, and once again, I'm not politically undesirable. You didn't. I told you this is not a popular (laughs) opinion. (laughs) This is not. So this is. um, But if we're talking from a sheerly pragmatic point of view, then if you want to, if you want to uh, put Russia in a position where it's just baffled and is actually getting would 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 get angry at its own actions, then it's by cutting off Eastern Ukraine, cutting off Crimea, saying have it and run, and, and for Ukraine that would. Actually, put it in a position where it can afford to run with all its power towards NATO and the EU, and then really make statements that we've mm-hmm. done this. You have to give us some kind, something in return, right now. Okay. Uh, there you go. <laughs> I told you. Not well, it's like private
2: it. opinion. of <laughs> nice. <NASA. laughs> <laughs> and you know, the younger you, the younger you are, the more radical you are. Yeah. The older you are, the more you know. The more elements of, of picture you you know, the less you feel radical. I think in her age, I would say the same. <laughs> but but now, <laughs> knowing all the spectrum and knowing things uh, like, like like getting salary for, for, for feeding your kids, for people who are living in cities in eastern Ukraine, fully dependent on trade with Russia. And good, we have a very good winter in this country, in my country. But if uh, it was minus 30 degrees on the street... Uh, thinking what we would do in case if we had gas war with Russia, well, it's a bit different perspective on on what to do. Uh, I am of different opinion what we should do. There are plenty of different things. First of all, yes, I agree that we have uh, we, we we are in U.S. to talk about U.S. and U.S. in Europe, not about Ukraine. Uh, but uh, certainly, the big problem is inside of our country. We have plenty of uh, people who uh, jumped out of sanction list just because our prosecutor office he has not collected and provided evidences, obvious uh, evidences for uh, crimes of these people. And Mr. Yanukovych and Azaro and plenty of other people are not anymore on sanctions list. Mm-hmm. What do we want from West if our own prosecutor office, 15,000 people, <laughs> are incapable in five years to collect evidences of crimes of these people. And we, we know the stories about huge trucks with cash they took out of key. We know all these crimes, and we have 15,000 people in prosecutor office uh, who, are, who, are, who are doing just, just their own uh, business in offices and, and not providing evidences for our Western allies to impose sanctions. So what do we want from them if we don't do our own homework? But it's not for you. It's for us to, to care, and I will be last to criticize my country here. We will do it at home. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but it's certainly our own issue. Issue with, with people who mentioned here. Some of them are not only uh, in U.S. A sanction list which is, of course, unacceptable. You must include them. But the problem is that only in our case as well, some of them are not. And when you ask why, um, um, you don't have any official answer. Um, invest it clear. Uh, lobbying, sponsorship, uh, friendship. But in my country, if you ask, you just see that there is a process which helps different people somehow to bypass and make uh, holes. For example, uh, you mentioned this guy, Cole uh, Cole King. He is not in our sanctions either. We asked it, what's his status? We were answered, he is, uh, he has, uh, 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 he is prohibited to enter the country, but he is not in sanction list. Why? You, you know it all, it's all in media. It's is published. There is no secret information here. There is nothing from uh, FBI. It's all what we collected by open sources and there is no reaction. So yes, Ukraine internally must work uh, more and better in this respect. Uh, But it's not again back to the reasons of the problem. It's not the problem which you will settle by sanctions. Mm -hmm. Sanctions are only supplementary instrument to force one of sides to engage into negotiations and to make final correct uh, change of policy when the whole understanding of what should be positive result is there. We must have a a carrot, we must have a clear understanding of how we reset, sorry for this word, uh, reset the whole European and uh, global security architecture. We must understand what were reasons which forced Russia to make such kind of hostile actions and to work with these reasons. And if we manage to deal with these reasons and uh, have a proposal which might be a compromise and... unpleasant for everyone, but acceptable for everyone, and then to force to adopt this proposal, we use sanctions, and it would work. Without a positive agenda, uh, I'm afraid uh, we, we couldn't even, uh, you couldn't even convince North uh, Korea to to follow uh, your proposals. You couldn't deal with Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in both cases, it's much smaller countries, much stronger more sanctions. more, so as uh, stronger sanctions. Yeah. What you want to do is uh, Softer sanctions on much bigger country mm-hmm. it is only supplementary instrument there should be a different agenda what we have to do and here is a problem is that we have now a, a different u.s different europe u.s with you know what is the u.s agenda and ukraine is certainly not well it is now on top of the agenda but not of the reasons which you want it to be mm-hmm. uh, it should be how u.s uh, would provide ukraine with another type of uh, security guarantees, which would be more effective than Budapest one. There should be uh, what kind of real support should be to Ukraine, not just, just javelins, which is very nice, but which is maybe half percent of what should be done. So if we have a different approach to this issue, then we could invent something and we could have a different answer where sanctions would just help to achieve the goal. But by sanctions itself, it's, it's, it's too little.
0: Well, that is a fitting note on which to conclude this ambitious uh, report on a very, very difficult problem. So I thank you both for for your contributions. Uh, Yoris, thank you very much for opening the event, and thank you all for joining.